Hello and welcome to The Messy Studio with Rebecca Kroll, the podcast at the intersection of art, travel, entrepreneurship, philosophy, and life in general. I am Ross Tickner, Rebecca's audio producer, podcast guru, and her son. Uh, today we have another interview with Henry Martin. This episode is going to be more focused on his work, on the biography of Agnes Martin. But first, we have two quick shout outs. First of all, on our last episode, we suggested that if a listener wanted to create an online art program for kids, we would try to do our best to help promote it. As it turns out, MJ, one of our listeners, had already been thinking along the same lines, and she has a Facebook group called Paint with MJ. At the time that you listen to this, it will probably have over 900 members already. So hop onto Facebook and search for the group Paint with MJ, or click the link in the description of this episode. The video section is where you're going to find the lessons, and there's lots of really great photos submitted by students in the photos section. So once again, that's Paint with MJ. Uh, secondly, we had an anonymous donation of $150 from a listener. Uh, this is really going to help us to continue to produce and expand the show. Right now, we're trying to run some ads to expand our listener base, and marketing isn't cheap. So once again, thank you so much to that anonymous donor. Um, we really appreciate that, uh, that very generous donation. Uh, it's tremendously helpful to the show. If you would like your own shout out on the Messy Studio podcast, just go to www.messystudiopodcast.com and click the donate button. You'll find the yellow donate button in the upper right hand corner of the screen. And if you click that button, you can set up either a one-time donation or a recurring monthly donation for literally any amount. And those donations uh, will show up on your credit card statement as coming from Core Publication Management, LLC. That's my production company that we use for production of the Messy Studio podcast so that we can track money in and out that's being spent on the podcast and then pay taxes at the end of the year. So once again, that's MessyStudioPodcast.com and click the donate button. All right, on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Messy Studio Ireland edition. I'm in Dublin, Ireland um, with Irish writer Henry Martin. And in the last episode, um, I interviewed Henry about his work and creative process. And today we're going to continue that conversation and focus especially on the subject of his 2018 biography, Agnes Martin, Pioneer Painter Icon. And that's a book that I mentioned um, during our podcast about books that artists recommend, which was um, episode 108. So Henry's book has received many accolades and positive reviews, including this one. Uh, and this is from Gina Brenneman, curator of an exhibit about Agnes Martin called Agnes Martin Before the Grid at the Harwood Museum in 2012. Um, which Henry also narrated the film of that title. Uh, but this is uh, Gina's quote. No other book on Agnes Martin has been researched as thoroughly and honestly as Agnes Martin, pioneer painter icon. Its sensitive and poetic nature makes it a must read for those truly interested in understanding um, the artist. So I'm very honored to have Henry Martin with us today. Welcome, Henry. Thank you. So um, I came across this Agnes Martin book um, one day at the Harwood Museum in Taos where um, I had been sitting in the room that's dedicated to her paintings, which is a wonderful, very quiet, still room in the museum. And afterwards, I went to the gift shop and thought I wanted a book about her. And I looked at several. There were 
five or six of them there. And I have to say, when I picked up your book, I just felt that it was the right one because there was an intimacy to the writing. I mean, you felt like you were going to get to know this this rather enigmatic character. <laughs> uh, and it, it had a different um, feeling to me than a lot of the monographs and things that are written in this very scholarly tone. Uh, at the same time, obviously very well researched and tons of information. So um, it was an appealing book to me in that way. Uh, so um, it's one I picked. And I'm, I was thinking about wondering what aspects of her character kind of drew you in. And this, this part of her that was very enigmatic must have presented a challenge. Absolutely. Um, I think there were... It's, it's, it's interesting because when you set out to... As we said in the last episode, I didn't set out to write a biography exactly, though that is what I ended up writing. But I did set out to learn more about her. And obviously who you have in mind at the beginning is a very different person to who you uh. end up kind of spending time with. And I never met Agnes Martin, um, though I interviewed her family, her friends, um, academics, curators who, you know, worked with her on her own shows. Um, so it was really through them that I got a sense of who she was um, and so she was kind of constantly unfolding, as it were, and I was always learning new things about her and seeing new parts to her personality. Um, and one of those was um, that she was regarded as an enigma and somewhat played up to that role as well because it suited her, because it kept people at bay mm -hmm. and it gave her some privacy and... Um, the privacy afforded her um, the opportunity to focus on her art, which was her main objective. Um, and but the enigma, certainly the the role of the enigma, is a really interesting one because people are drawn to it. Um, so it was fun to kind of explore that part of her. Yeah. Um and she was rather famous for pushing people away, right? <laughs> she, as soon as somebody got too close, that was it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that was absolutely the case. And she was like that professionally and um, in terms of her personal relationships, so it seems. Um, there were very few people who had uh, friendships with her that lasted you know, throughout her life, it seemed. Um, that she had very intense friendships with people and those sometimes edited, ended very suddenly. Um, she also moved around quite a lot and so it's difficult in a sense to mm -hmm. keep friendships going um, in, in that sense. Um, but one of the main... One of the things I read over and over again when I was doing my initial research was that she was a hermit, she was a loner, she lived apart from the crowd. All of these things that contributed to building up this kind of mythical artist operating alone off the grid in a desert. And while that may have been true for very small periods of time, for the most part, the story that I found out was that actually she was somebody who hopped from one community or family unit into another 
And I think that's really heartening for all kinds of reasons, but especially for artists, Mm -hmm. because a lot of us really struggle to find that balance between building space to be alone and to be undisturbed while also making sure that we have a connection to the world and some kind of community unit that we also belong to. Um, And so while I think, and she says it herself at different times, she struggled to stay in the midst of life. Um, She was constantly trying to work out that balance. And I think her story in that sense is a story for all of us who try and be creative. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I guess most people do have that impression that she did not uh, cultivate relationships and that when you read your book, clearly that was important to her. Um, But was there a point where uh, she would either deliberately move or remove herself from a relationship in order to focus on her work? Or was it just, I mean... She did balance that occasionally. She did balance that occasionally. I think that she was a very ambitious person. That's definitely what a lot of her friends have said about her. And that doesn't always gel very well with the vision that people have of her as being, Mm -hmm. you know, an older, demure woman who speaks in very poetic um, (laughs) sentences and seems very otherworldly. She was very much of this world. Uh Um, She she curated her own image very closely. I know um, I I was one of the things that you mentioned several times in the book was how she would destroy um, her own work if it didn't live up to her standards. Periodically, she would just burn it or rip it right yeah absolutely um so when she was in the 40s when she was you know it was really in the the 40s about 43 that she seriously decided to become an artist i mean she she decided at the end of the 1930s uh, but it was really in the 40s when she had space and time to kind of establish a studio practice and and, you know, she had been a teacher, you know, for on and off for about 20 years. She'd been studying to be being a teacher. She was a teacher. She then pursued art um, and she was very determined um, to do that. And so I think as that progressed, there were times when she did end relationships and she moved city um, in order, she she did privilege her art over, I think, relationships, sometimes to her own detriment, I think. Well, and it's interesting that she had the urge to teach, because that certainly <laughs> involves uh, interaction, um, and that that in some ways remains strong in her. I mean, she did she kind of mentor some other artists? Yeah, she, she did. So her, her background as a teacher, she studied at Columbia Teachers College. And that was a really innovative um, school um, at the time period. So we're talking the late 30s, the 40s. She also studied at the University of Albuquerque. Um, and But interestingly, her studies in these institutes and universities... Um, 
she was very much active even then in the community that she was working with. So she she taught in Harlem in the 30s and 40s. She taught in Albuquerque. Um, I think she always retained um, that love of passing on knowledge or inspiration Mm -hmm. to somebody else. And that really comes across in her writings. She lectured quite widely, you know, for somebody who was a hermit, um, she lectured very widely. I feel like she really believed she had something to say and something to pass on. And by all accounts, a lot of individuals, um, artists who were younger than her, who she encountered, she definitely nurtured them. Mm -hmm. And I think she did that throughout her life. I think she did that, you know, in Albuquerque, even upon graduation, she was teaching um, artists um, in Albuquerque. Um, Even when she lived in New York, um, living on Quinty Slip with people like Jasper Johns and Robert Rauschenberg, Robert Indiana, those people were close to 20 years younger than her at that time. Mm. Um, and again, when you read interviews with those artists and the way they refer to her and think of her, there's definitely an element of um, a mentor there at times. And what what do you think she was... What were some of her strong messages that she wanted to tell other artists? I think some of her strong messages were... She spoke a lot about beauty and inspiration and joy and happiness and those universal feelings that she believed um, were very powerful and that are innate in each of us and that art can awaken. Um, But she also spoke a lot about pride and greed and envy. And I think she was quite keen to caution artists Uh um, on those more negative feelings that she herself would have encountered. Um, she spoke a lot about the need to be alone and the need to have your own space that you go to. And when you're there, you gather together all of your sensibilities and you create and you kind of shut out the world. Um, but, you know, she, but like we've kind of been discussing, she tried to walk that line between having that space and then having a, a social dimension to her so she also you know um she has a quote where she says it's better to go to the beach and think about painting than it is to be painting and thinking about going to the beach i Um, love that quote (laughs) it's a brilliant quote i mean get out there in life and live it and experience it and soak it up it's not all about what you do in the studio absolutely and she says it herself over and over again she was happiest when going into the mountains Uh you know i think Although she was an artist and gave so much to her craft and to being an artist, culture is no, um, what's the word, uh, replacement maybe for nature mm-hmm. and being in the world. And it's interesting to me, um, you know, you mentioned some of the themes that she was interested in talking about were things like love and friendship and joy, uh, which it seems that she struggled very hard to find those things in her own personal life. One of the things that struck me about the paintings that are at the Harwood in in Taos, those are 
the titles, things like friendship and um, love, I don't remember them exactly, but they're, they're all quite emotional. A Perfect Day, I think, is one. And these paintings, and if anyone listening to this does not know her work, uh, you really need to, to take a look because the work is very austere, very minimalist. Um, and it's, it's the kind of work that uh, to, to have those sort of titles on it seems a deliberate um, sort of uh, challenge, I think, to the viewer. Absolutely. I think you've really brought up something interesting there. The titles, like you said, they're, they're quite effusive. They're quite emotional. Um, and yet, when you look at the work, sometimes people struggle to connect the two. Now, most of her work is untitled, so you can kind of bring your own meaning to them. Um, what I find interesting about the work is when you see it reproduced in a book, you know, it's usually at seven by seven inches, mm-hmm. maybe. Um, it was six by six foot. You know, they're actually really large paintings. They are. Um, and even though they seem very minimalist, again, in a publication, in the flesh, and even though they can be quite subdued, they can be really intense experiences mm-hmm. because they ask a lot of you as a viewer. I agree. On the one hand, they're saying there's nothing here. You might even walk by them. But on the other hand, you really have to stop and look to see what yes. is there. Um, and I think that ability for them to stop you in your tracks and kind of switch your time code or to you're not thinking in kind of real world seconds anymore. Mm. You're, you're, you're being stopped and told to go slower and to go deeper and um, find that really interesting. And some of her work, um, and uh, I can't now think of, uh, uh, of an example, but a lot of her work where um, cause she worked really in series form. She would think of a concept like praise or beauty or joy or happiness or love. And she would create like a number of works, maybe up to 12 canvases, um, all the time meditating on that one idea. Uh-huh. And so you, you, you see a uniformity maybe in series form. And so they're like a series of works she does where she uses these very beautiful washes of pink. And they're really lush. Um, and you know, you use the word minimalism there or minimalist and they are, they're very reduced. Um, but her process of creating was one of addition rather than subtraction. Ah, you know, yes. Giacometti, uh, subtracted, um, when he was creating his, uh, sculpture, his was an act of taking away to get to something. Mm-hmm. Hers, even though the end result is still very, minimal was actually one of constantly adding layers those layers were just you know diluted water yeah um but it was an active addition and i think what's interesting with her work is again on a page you can't see a lot but in flesh those canvases you start seeing those layers emerge. Mm-hmm. You see the addition. You see the mistakes. They're you see the splotches. Subtle. They're really subtle. Yeah. Um, and I, th- she thought of herself as an abstract expressionist. She was of the same age and generation as a lot of the abstract expressionist artists. 
And that was really her, I suppose, her school of training. Um, but I, what I find really interesting, both with her work and minimalism, is it seems so different to certainly action painting. Yes. Um, and so different, again, to, let's say, pop art. And what I find interesting with her work is that, you know, in a mid-century America where action painting was so formative and influential and then Mm -hmm. pop art likewise the fact that she was choosing to focus on something that was Mm non-objective and not even non-objective but almost non-gestural in a way um i find that a really fascinating rebellion in, in a sense, against other predominant this, movements. And this refinement or austerity about her work, it's very uh, very controlled and uncontrolled at the same time because when you see how it's done on the canvas, you can see her hand. You can see she's drawing. She can never draw an absolutely perfect line because she's human being. And that's one of the interesting things you get in person when you see them is that they look somewhat mechanical in a reproduction but you you do see your hand when you see it but they're not i mean they're very controlled in they're a way. very controlled and some for me some are very intense yeah um you know some of those works um i in the book i talk about band paintings and grid paintings and the difference mm-hmm. between those um but in the mid 60s early 60s when she was creating grid paintings so paintings composed of grids um some of those are so tightly composed there are like over sixty thousand individual squares in them (laughs) i mean the level of concentration and intensity needed to dedicate yourself to committing to that and you know to go back to what you were saying earlier about her work and destroying work i mean she did destroy work she didn't always get it right it did take multiple attempts sometimes Mm -hmm. Um, for her to get the image she had in her mind out onto the canvas. And she had a process. She she worked in smaller scale first and she worked out the mathematics of it. And then she uh, applied that to a a larger canvas. Um, So a lot of thought went into those works. Yes. Um, And I... You know, uh, there's a documentary called With My Back to the World by Mary Lance, who visited Agnes Martin in New Mexico and filmed her painting. And what one of the things I found interesting about watching that was watching her paint and the physicality of her doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, because actually it looked like hard work. <laughs> you know, she was using... These little buckets of paint with, you know, maybe a little bit of Liquitex or something dropped into, you know, water. And then she was painting really, really quickly across a canvas that only had a couple of layers of gesso. And then the paint, the water was kind of almost drying immediately as it touched the canvas. Like she worked really quickly and you could see the physical labor involved Uh in what she was doing. So again, even though the end result might be calm and (laughs) all of these other things, she worked really hard and it was physically quite demanding, I think, especially as she got older. And they're so big. And so to try and keep something calm and uniform at the end, you know, required a lot of stamina and work and hitching and unhitching and moving Mm -hmm. the canvas around 
mm-hmm. um, to, to, to try and create some kind of uniformity, I think, in the application. Um, so, yeah, I think th- there's a lot of work there. Yeah, the, the pro, well, I guess it's often said the process, uh, well, the work seems meditative and that there's an assumption the process itself is meditative, maybe a little more active than we realize, <laughs> but, but she, she developed a way of painting that somehow satisfied her inner vision and she, um, carried it out over the years, um, without a lot of deviation. I know that her early work was quite different and figurative even, or, um, shape oriented. But, um, once she, f- seems like once she found that, um, process, she was okay with it. And she wasn't always happy with it because I know she destroyed a lot of her work as well. Um, but somehow it satisfied the need for order. Uh, she, she faced a lot of challenges in her own life. And I, I wonder, um, you know, not to, um, psychoanalyze too much, but, you know, this need for, for calm and order in her work when her personal life was not, she made efforts to keep it, um, controlled, but, uh, do you want to talk a little bit about some of her personal challenges? Yeah, sure. Um, I think you're right. I think it, it took her over 20 years, and she says this, it took her over 20 years to find a vision or a form that she was happy with. That's uh-huh. a lot of searching. It is a lot. <laughs> I yes. mean, and I think once she hit on it, and she says she achieved it with the tree, um, which is a work of hers, though I think she, that's, but really she had achieved it a little bit earlier than that. She, uh, she produced a series of work, um, in 62, 63, one of the works being Friendship. Um, and I think with the grid, she really hit on something that she was comfortable with, that she just found her vision or like you said, something that she could relax into and, from that point on until her death and she was working up until the end of her life, mm-hmm. she very much committed to the, you know, the using a grid and using bands as a kind of structure for her work. Um, I think that was a great relief to her when she found that. Um, and, you know, she sacrificed a lot, I think, to get to that place where she could achieve that vision um and i think you're right she had to overcome a lot personally um as well as professionally at times but certainly um from my conversations with her family and friends and you know i explore all of this in the book there were lots of different threads to her character um various hurdles that she had to overcome um to make it as an artist one was finding her her artistic vision um another was she was very poor for a lot of her life um she lived in poverty sometimes that was elected in a sense that she lived a very simple life at times an ascetic life um in order to be able to paint um but other times she wasn't earning money um uh, and she was failing to earn money off her artwork um, that was a reason she left the Betty Parsons Gallery, for instance. Um, another hurdle was that um, she 
this isn't necessarily a word that she would have used herself, but she was a lesbian or she was gay or she was queer. Um, she had lots of different girlfriends over the years and that was very much a new area of research and publication kind of in my book. she did not talk about it. She didn't. She dropped hints. Yeah. She dropped hints. Um, uh, and actually, some of my favorite interviews with her are the interviews she gave really late in life in her last couple of years where um, she speaks more about romance, actually, and uh-huh. affection at a personal level. And so there's one quote from her where she's kind of warning somebody off falling in love and, you know, distrusting the senses. And But the example she uses is she had a playmate when she was a child and she thought this girl was perfect and beautiful and all of these things. So, you know, famously she told Jill Johnson that she wasn't a woman. She was a doorknob leading into a quiet existence. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) You can cut, like, you know... She was very much a woman. She very much had, you know, very meaningful relationships, romantic and platonic. Um, There's not much evidence of her romantic relationships with men, um, but there's quite a lot of evidence of the women who were in her life and who supported her massively, Mm -hmm. financially, emotionally. She lived with these women. Some of these relationships went on for 20, 30 years. Some only lasted, you know, a number of months or a year or two. Um, but anyway, that was something that I feel she had to overcome. And certainly the people I interviewed spoke about her difficulties in embracing that part of her and also keeping in mind the time she lived in, yes. um, which were deeply homophobic and... Um, were were male were um, the male artists around her more out than she was? No, not necessarily. Um, I think when she, both in um, New Mexico and in New in New York, she um, gravitated towards kind of queer communities. Um, I feel like from the research I've done people were very much, they were free in their immediate community, but still very much... I see. Um, very quite. Yes. Um, and not advertising. Discreet. Themselves. They were quite discreet, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and then there was also the challenge of her mental health. Certainly, yeah. So like I mentioned, you know, poverty and her mental health. Um, we know now that she had schizophrenia, um, and that manifested in different ways over the years. And um, that was complicated, of course, with her poverty and her sexuality. And um, and if, even in a way, her gender, being a woman artist in a very male-dominated world mm-hmm. as well. Um, and yeah, her, her, her schizophrenia, obviously talking about mental health and art together is a really tricky territory. Um, and you mentioned earlier the idea of creating balance maybe from a personal position where you don't have a lot of balance in your Mm -hmm. world or stability and I think that again from the people I've spoken to that seems to be something that her friends believe in that uh, painting and the way she did allowed her to have a level of order um, in her life Um, and she uh suffered from 
aural hallucinations. Um, she could lie in bed for days or sometimes months. Um, her, her, she could be temperamental. Um, she very much had voices in her head that she listened to and that guided her, as a lot of us do to some degree. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, but hers were not always very pleasant and could often take over. That's, I mean, that's very striking that she she really suffered with um, with the mental health issues and persevered and found ways that her work um, could help her cope. And I just think it's, I, I, I like the last part of the book, especially uh, about, I think, I think just there was an honesty to when people spoke about the things that she struggled with, her friends after she had died, and they felt that it was all right then to speak, because she did not want people to speak about this, I guess, when she was alive, right? Uh, but but her friends loved her and wanted people to know she overcame so much, and she was so strong, um, and found her, her work as a refuge. That is, It was really touching. Yeah, completely. I think that, and I think this book, very fortunately, kind of happened when it did, um, because a, n- a number of the people who are featured in the book are no longer living. Mm-hmm. And so there was really, it was the last chance for a lot of these stories to be captured um, and to be kind of verified, I guess, as well. Um, and for her friends, exactly, they, they, some of them were sick of this idea of this kind of artist figure who, <laughs> you know, was kind of a hermit and an, an enigma and, and... The person who was very wise, the person who... Yeah, yeah. The, we see the videos where she's speaking in a very Buddha-like manner and, yeah. you know, she's very... Um, imparting wisdom yeah yeah but they knew there was another side there was another side and you know one big revelation for me in writing this was really her early life who where nobody really had done any research into that mm-hmm. and i don't know why that is uh, i can't i can't say why other writers do or don't you know <laughs> right research certain but you things. did it <laughs> um but I, but i did and um she had a really full life you know it was a mm-hmm. fascinating life it was um, she traveled to different places. She lived in different places. You, you talk about the, the image of the, the Buddha-like older lady, um, again, speaking quite poetically about joy and happiness and such. But she was a strong athlete. Yes, that was interesting. Youth. She was a swimmer. She was a strong, handsome woman yeah. who drank a lot and partied a lot. <laughs> and had a real joy for life mm-hmm. um, and who was very outdoorsy um, and loved nature. Um, and so, and I guess be, one of the nice things about the book is that 
I get to talk about that and hear mm-hmm. those stories from the people who were there to kind of remember yes. a lot of those early days in the 40s, especially. It's uh, a fascinating story of a person's life, no matter who they were, because of everything she she went through. But uh, seeing it in, in light of her work and... Um, the accomplishments uh, is is very interesting. So um, I think we're uh, going to have to wrap it up about now. But um, anything else you want to add um, about Agnes before we end? Um, no, it's been interesting talking about her again because it's been a couple of years since the book was published and she's kind of disappeared a little bit <laughs> from view, which is probably a good thing in yeah. lots of ways because I get to focus on other books yes. um, or other ideas. Um, but I feel like she taught me a lot. Mm. And that I encountered her at a time where I think I really needed to find somebody who could be somewhat of a role model for how I might engage with ah. my practice, even as a writer. And... I think even if you know nothing about her art, actually, even if you don't like her art, because I had no real sense of her art either. And I had started researching her before I'd even seen a painting in the flesh, (laughs) you know. So I wasn't necessarily drawn to her for her art, though I would always encourage somebody to seek that out and try and see one of her works um, but I feel like her story is a universal story. Mm-hmm. I feel like those challenges that she encountered and overcame um, will be inspiring to people who might read this book. Um, and, you know, her, her, her story is a human story. And Absolutely. I think there's going to be a lot that people can identify with, maybe. Um, and by no means was she a perfect person, just like none of us are perfect. Um, but well, she lived I, through oh. very interesting times, um, both just in social history as much as in kind of art history. Um, and, you know, I feel like those stories in the book are, you know, a kind of rare opportunity for people to kind of look behind the enigma and um, kind of get to know somebody a little yeah. bit. And the the fact that she was so human and so imperfect is it adds it adds to the story. Yeah. As you say, none of us are. <laughs> none of us are. Or All art right. can try and be. <laughs> we try. But we we ourselves, alas, may not. All right. Well thank you so much, uh, Henry, for joining us and coming on the Messy Studio podcast. Thanks very much, Rebecca. Well, that just about wraps up another episode of the Messy Studio Podcast. For more from the Messy Studio, please check out www.messystudiopodcast.com and sign up for the email list. You can also find the Messy Studio on Facebook, as well as public profiles for both Rebecca Kroll and myself, Ross Tickner. For more from Rebecca Kroll, please check out www.rebeccacroll.com and www.squeegeepress.com and sign up for the email lists to stay up to date on events, book signings, and openings. The Messy Studio Podcast is a core publication management production. Thanks for listening. We'll be back again next week with more art and entertainment. In the meantime, embrace your creative space, messy or otherwise. Thanks, everybody.